Okay, we're recording. Okay. Good day, everyone. Good to be back with you. <clears throat> On a personal note, uh, today, uh, the 16th day of Menachemov, uh, is the yard site of my father of blessed memory. And uh, his yard site always falls within the week of Parshat Ekev. And I uh, attempted this year to see if there's a connection, because there undoubtedly is a connection. There are not, everything is personal in the Torah. So, uh, but I, I never, uh, I never gave it really much thought until, for some reason this year, I did think about it quite a bit. And uh, I uh, feel that the connection lies in the Parsha. This Parsha of Akev, Moshe Rabbeinu attempts to describe to the Jewish people who lived in Egypt and then experienced the desert and who have never seen the land of Israel yet and are about to enter. So he's like giving them a tourist brochure. It used to be that way. Uh, today it's all done probably on uh, computers and uh, Zoom and telephones, etc. But there was a time that if you wanted to visit a certain place, <clears throat> you went to the travel agent and they had brochures. Now, the brochures always portrayed an idyllic place, because otherwise, why would you want to go there? But the brochure did give you an idea of what to expect, what you were going to see. Uh, the historic sites, uh, the scenic sites, the museums, the parks, and the concerts you could attend, the boat rides, all of that was included in the tourist brochure. And people used to bring them home and peruse them and plan their trips accordingly. Lately, because of the coronavirus, uh, most people don't go on trips anymore. But uh, we hope that uh, times will allow us to do that once again. But Moshe Rabbeinu here gives a uh, verbal tourist bro uh, brochure in the Parsha of Akif. And he talks about Eretz Yisrael. And he talks about it in glowing terms, and he talks about it physically. He says, it has everything. And he says, uh, 
you have spring water, you have table water, uh, you have uh, water that's in the uh, in the watershed underneath the earth, and it always comes out in the mountains and in the valleys. So we have a uh, predictable Mediterranean climate here that for many months in a row there is no rain. We haven't seen rain since uh, really the end of March, beginning of April. And we probably won't see it again till after Sukkot. But within the ground, the aquifers, the, the table of water that is stored there, uh, continues to supply us with water, as well as this, uh, the uh, Lake of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, Yom Kinneret. And today we have uh, desalinization. So uh, I'm told that 80% of all the water uh, that's used for human consumption today in Israel is from desalinization. The other water is used for agriculture and other purposes. So Moshe describes this. They're coming from a desert. The desert doesn't rain. Moshe tells them that you have a few months of rain. But don't worry because you have aquifers and springs that will come forth from the mountains and the valleys. And then Moshe describes for them uh, the fruit of the land of Israel. And he lists the seven fruits that are to soil was most proud of all of all of which exist within the country today. And it's interesting, Chazal saw that the uh, production of fruit is a, is the sign of uh, not only prosperity and food, but it's the sign of the uh, divine presence amongst us. And the Talmud says that one of the signs of the approach of the complete redemption of the Jewish people and their return en masse to this country will be the fact that the land will begin to produce its fruit again that we'll see the blessings of the fruit. And in the order of the fruit that's listed, uh, the grapes, pomegranate, figs, dates, olives, etc. In that order, and also the grains, uh, wheat and barley, the two basic grains. So there we also have the order that the Gemara talks about, when you sit down at a table to eat, a Torah Jew does not 
ignore the fact that there is an order in what you eat. In fact, it's well known that in Europe, in previous centuries, when a, uh, a rabbi was taken to be a candidate to become the rov in the community, one of the things that was uh, done was that they set an elaborate table for him with all sorts of cakes and with wine and with fruit, with olives, everything. And they watched to see if he knew uh, what to eat first and what to eat second. And if he did not, then they said, what kind of a rabbi is that? I don't know if that test still exists. Uh, I never experienced it in my career. But uh, I, I thought that that was a very fair test, much more fair than many of the questions that are asked on rabbinic interviews where whatever you answer, you're wrong. Anyway, there's a legend, famous legend. Uh, all Jewish legends have a core of uh, veracity to them, even though it may only be a legend. But they say about the Yechevskel Alevi Landau, the noted Yehuda, who was the Rav in Prague in the late 1700s. He was a great Gon Olam, and uh, he was uh, a great posek. We have hundreds of his uh, responsa, and he wrote uh, commentaries to the Talmud, the Tzlach, one of the giants of the Jewish world. So the legend is that when uh, he uh, was being interviewed to become the Rov of Prague, now Prague was a major Jewish community. It was one of, after Vienna, and it was the major city in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it had a distinguished uh, roster of rabbis who had served there, the famous Maralme Prague. So naturally, the people in Prague were uh, very uh, delicate, so to speak. They wanted to make sure they had the right rabbi. And they didn't want to do it based on reputation alone but on actuality. So they set this enormous table that had all of these uh, delicacies and fruits and uh, cakes and uh, everything set on the table. And they said to him, Rebbe, you make a bracha, take what you want. The legend is that he was young and he was nervous and uh, he almost absentmindedly uh, picked up a grape 
They made a brocha boy prio eats on it and ate it. So the people around the table said to him, Rebbe, Mizonos, first you make a brocha on the cakes. In the Torah it says, Chito Saora first. And then it says the fruits. And he is reputed to have answered, I do not eat Mizonos. And the legend is that he never again ate Mizonos for the rest of his life because he did not want to be false unto himself. So it was an order. Yaakov Kamenetsky told me, I think I I shared this with you once before, that uh, Rabbi Yaakov never ate Gebrochts on Pesach, though the rest of his family did, his children, his wife, they all ate Gebrochts. He never ate Gebrochts. So he told me the reason. He said that uh, the first Pesach, uh, that he was uh, engaged, or maybe they was married already. He was uh, at, at his mother-in-law's table. And he said his mother-in-law was a terrible cook. And uh, therefore, the knedlach that she made, he said they were cannonballs. I mean, he couldn't eat it. So when they passed the food to him, he said, I don't eat gebrochts. So in order not to be false unto himself, he never ate Gibrochts again, even though all of us Lithuanians uh, eat Gibrochts with relish on Pesach. So uh, there's an order to what you're supposed to eat. Because eating in Jewish life is a holy thing. We don't eat like, uh, you know, animals eat and they're hungry. And there are a lot of people that eat like animals. They wolf the food down. Whatever you put, it doesn't make a difference. There's no order. The Torah listed an order because eating is a holy thing. That's why you have to wash before and you have to make blessings and you have to say uh, blessings after you eat. It's a whole process. And therefore, Chazal, uh, we're certainly opposed to fast food, to eating, standing, you know, one of the things uh, I'm not a especially pious person, I've never been. But uh, when I was a Roman in the United States, I did not eat at the smorgasbord. Not because I was not tempted, and not because the kashers wasn't perfect, but I didn't want to eat standing. With a plate in my hand and, you know, that, that, so to speak, diminishes the holiness of the act. 
So in this week's parsha, in the description of Eretz Yisrael, is the description of the order of food to be eaten. Because in Eretz Yisrael, you're going to be missing anything. You can have whatever you want, as we have. Anything you want, you can buy. We don't realize the uh, the bounty and blessing that we have. And a Russian friend who came here in 1991 when the Russian Aliyah started, so he told me that he and his wife used to go every day to the supermarket not to buy, to look. Because when he came from Russia, you had nothing to look at. The shelves, uh, you know, you didn't have a choice of uh, going to Machna Yehuda or to Yom Tov. So Moshe told them that uh, it's going to be here. You're never going to be missing anything. So therefore, treated as the holy place that it is. What a bounty I'm giving you. And you have to remember that for uh, 15, 1800 years, this country was completely barren. Didn't have anything. All the trees and forests that we see that make our landscape so beautiful and so fresh, it's all been planted in the last century, century and a half. Yeah. I think uh, I always remark that oh, the Israeli wine industry is to me uh, such a wonderful thing. Because I remember when I was uh, a child growing up in Chicago, and he wanted to get a bottle of Israeli wine, so the only wine they had was, they called it sacramental wine. It was very heavy Concord grapes sweetened with prune juice. It was undrinkable. We learned how to make wine. Boutique, the best in the world. Uh, when I uh, I used to go for Pesach to South Bend, Indiana, to my children. So there was a big liquor store in my South Bend. And I would go and ask him if he had any Israeli wine. So the first few years, he had the Israeli wine in the back of the store in a different, you know, like... If you didn't ask for it or look for it, you couldn't, you couldn't get it. And he had a very small selection. The last time I was in South Bend, uh, which was a few years ago, so I went again, Erev Pesach with my grandsons, to get the wine, because you have to have Israeli wine for the Seder. not a Seder without it. And uh, 
the man recognized me. He said, oh, you're here for the Israeli. Now he had the Israeli wine outside on the shelf with a special section. He says, people come and buy. It's a very good wine. So he thought originally that's only uh, the two and a half Orthodox Jews that are going to come and buy the wine. But that's not the case anymore. So that's a sign of redemption. How do you look at that? So you can look at it and you say, wine is wine, you know, whatever. But the Gemara said that it's a sign of redemption. It's a sign that there are better days ahead. Because for 1,500 years, there was the wine. It didn't exist. I was mentioned the fact that uh, when Carmel in 1882 finally produced a bottle of wine, so the Baron Rothschild, who owned the winery, uh, sent uh, the bottle of wine to Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the Nitziv, the Rosh Yeshiva of Alojan, because the Nitziv was the titular head of the Chovevei of the Lovers of Zion. So he sent him this bottle of wine as a gift. Living in the house of the Nitziv then in Valojan was his nephew, Rabbi Boruch Halevi Epstein, who wrote the Torah Tmima, amongst many other works. And he records in his biography, Makor Boruch, his autobiography, he uh, records that when the bottle of wine came to the house of the Nitziv, the Nitziv went into his bedroom and changed into his Shabbos clothing in honor of a bottle of wine made by Jews from the grapes of Eretz Israel. So uh, I always remembered that, and my father remembered it. My father was greatly careful to patronize Eretz Israel. So he wasn't interested in Argentina, Chile, South Africa, this, that, Australia. Yeah, it's great wine, but that's got nothing to do with us. Doesn't speak to us. And the wine from Eretz Yisrael has so many mitzvahs that are performed on it before it becomes a bottle of wine. So it's automatically invested with a holiness, with a special quality. And that's what Moshe told the Jewish people. He said, I'm sending you to a land, don't... So the idea of you won't eat it in poverty or in scarcity or not enough. Miskenus also means poverty of spirit. It's not just going to be food to you. Every bite will be holy. Now that is the substitute for the mon. In the desert, they ate the mon. So then they knew they were eating lechem abirim. They're eating the food of angels. 
They're leading, uh, they're, they're eating from God's hand, so to speak. When you come to Eretz soil and you got to plow and plant and do everything yourself, so you may be tempted to think that what? There's no connection. So Moshe told them, You're not going to eat bread in poverty, poverty of spirit. You'll realize the bread you eat is holy. It'll remind you of your creator. That's the special quality of Eretz Yisrael, is that everything in Eretz Yisrael reminds us of the creator. He said an interesting thing. He said, It's rocks have iron in it. And from its hills, you will uh, mine copper. So Eretz's soil is not especially blessed with raw materials. It's not Saudi Arabia or Kuwait that has oil. Uh, the great favor the Lord did us that we have discovered and exploited natural gas fields in the Mediterranean, but it's not in Eretz Israel. Legally, it belongs to the state of Israel, but it has no din of Eretz Israel. And uh, we don't have uh, many raw materials. Therefore, Chazal took the words Asher Avoneha Barzel, that its rocks are iron, and they said, Al Tikre Avoneha Elaboneha, Boneha. Drop the olive. Their children, their generations, their progeny are iron. Strength, innovation. That's a real blessing. That is a resource. You never run out of that. And Chazal saw it, and they said, Eretz Israel produces Bonetta, produces these kinds of people. The state of Israel has produced a Jewish society, talented and innovative. Special. There's no difference between us and our cousins right at 20 miles from us. So why isn't Lebanon or Syria, or Jordan, or Egypt, or Iraq, or why aren't they? So that's what Moshe promised us. Asher Avonel Barzil. 
שם אל תקרא אבונר אלא בונר. certainly the modern history of the Jewish people and the state of Israel. It was interesting, therefore, again, to get back to my father, if I may. Uh, in 1923, almost a century ago, my father came to the land of Israel with the Slavotka Yeshiva, the altar of Slavotka at Nosentzvi Finkel, took half of his yeshiva from Lithuania and brought them to Israel. And he, uh, not as a Zionistic move, but as a realistic move that he saw that the Jewish people were going to survive in Israel, maybe even had premonitions about what would happen in Lithuania. Uh, so my father was one of the students that came. My father was a young uh, boy. I mean, he, was, uh, he wasn't 20 yet. And uh, the Slabotka Yeshiva uh, had its home here in Jerusalem for a number of years. But the Slabotka Yeshiva was... Uh, too modern uh, for the Yeshua uh, Yoshon here in Israel because they dressed European and they were dandies and etc. So therefore the altar moved them from Jerusalem to Hebron where the yeshiva reestablished itself and was very successful. Unfortunately, in Hebron in 1929, there was a terrible pogrom by the Arabs. 41 were killed from the yeshiva. They moved back to Yerushalayim. And Yerushalayim, they no longer called themselves the Slabotka yeshiva. They called themselves the Hebroner yeshiva. And my father uh, came back to Yerushalayim. Rav Cook then founded his yeshiva, Merkaz Harav. And my father was a student there for four years by Rav Cook. Then my father came to America. He got married in America. He became a Rav. He was a Rav in Chicago 50 years. And then... Uh, when he was in his 80s, he moved to Muncie and he lived with my son and daughter-in-law. And then at a very advanced age, when my wife and I were making Aliyah, he came with us here. Uh, he said to me, he wants to be in Eretz Yisrael. He, said he never left Eretz Yisrael. He took a lot of detours in New York, Chicago, we all take detours. We never left there, it's a show. And in fact, that's the story of the Jewish people. And that's why Moshe could speak to them in those terms. He could give them this tourist brochure because they had been there, even though they had never yet been there before. 
But Avram Avinu had been there. And therefore we were there too. And, and, and I think it's an interesting psychological thing. Uh, many people have remarked on it to me that when you first come there to Israel, you have a feeling of deja vu. You have a feeling that somehow, somehow I've been here before, even though I never was. But it's not strange to me. It's not alien to me. It's not like going to Japan. And uh, Moshe Rabbeinu uh, emphasized that in uh, this week's parasha. In his description of Eretz Yisrael. And in what he wanted them to gain from it. And what he wanted them to appreciate. In last week's parsha of Oet Hanan, so we read the uh, sad uh, statement that Moshe made, Ki soli bonim uvnei bonim v'noshamtem boherets. You become old. What does it mean you become old? You'll take Eretz Yisrael for granted. You won't appreciate it anymore. You won't think it's a special place. You won't think that it's a privilege to live here. And when that happens, so then other things happen. But it all begins from the loss of the sense of wonderment that one needs in order to appreciate Eretz Yisrael. And that is exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to communicate in this week's Parsha to the Jewish people. I'm bringing you to this special land where everything physical you will have. One more idea with which I want to conclude. Chazal asked a question in the Gemara, Lomo ein chamei tveria b'Yerushalayim. How come the hot springs of Tveria don't exist in Yerushalayim? What kind of question is that? They're in Tveria, so how can they be in Yerushalayim? But what Chazal really asked here is, how come Jerusalem doesn't have the Alps? It doesn't have Lake Geneva? It doesn't have anything physically outstanding. It's, it's, it's beautiful, it's hilly, but uh, yeah, not. Uh... It's not uh, Chicago that has Lake Michigan. And no major river here. Most cities are because of the river. There's no river here whatsoever. So why? Why did the Rabonishon, so to speak, give us such a uh, bland, if not even drab location? Hard to make a tourist brochure about Yerushalayim. 
And the Gemara answered, because if he did, people would come here for the wrong reasons. They would see the wrong things. They would be attracted by the hot springs and not by Yerushalayim. So Yerushalayim has to stand alone. And either you get it or you don't. Either you appreciate it or you don't. But it's a standalone thing. It's not dependent on physical beauty, location, navigation. It's not dependent on any of that. And that is a great lesson because that applies to all of Eretz Yisrael and that applies to our attitude towards all of the things that we witness. So I want to thank you all for listening and to wish you a Shabbat Shalom. Good health. Stay healthy. And in Mirz Hashem, we'll get through all of this together in good spirits and good health and success. Cold tube, Selah.